0: Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from April 2015, Dr. Barrett Rollins and Dr. David Jackman discuss the latest developments in precision cancer medicine and how new research may impact future treatment of lung cancer and other diseases. Dr. Rollins is the chief scientific officer at Dana-Farber, and Dr. Jackman is a medical oncologist with Dana-Farber's Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology. Anne Doerr from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins them for the conversation.
1: So Dr. Rollins, for you first. What is precision cancer medicine and how is it different from traditional cancer treatment?
2: So this is a sort of a complicated answer. Um, and you have to be careful when we talk about precision cancer medicine and what was known as personalized cancer medicine to separate the substance of stuff from the hype. Um, When we first began talking about tailoring treatments to specific abnormalities that we find genetically in patients, there was a sort of a rage to call this personalized cancer medicine. But I think it's fair to say that medicine was always personalized. You're always dealing with the patient in front of you. You're always tailoring your specific treatments to the personalized uh, set of symptoms and signs and desires and patient preferences that you see in front of you. To some extent, we saw this a little bit more in cancer maybe than in some other diseases. And even, you know, uh, years and years ago, we would tailor specific treatments to, say, estrogen receptor status in a woman with breast cancer. And that's why I think that much more than just sort of a marketing kind of ploy, the switch to precision medicine actually has some content to it. What we're talking about now is trying to be very precise in aligning treatments with the specific abnormalities that we see in a patient's cancer. The most common way to think about this is uh, genomic abnormalities. Since we know the cancer is fundamentally a disease of the genome, it's fundamentally a disease that occurs when genes that control cell proliferation are damaged or mutated or overexpressed or gone. Um, And we can use that information to provide therapies that block the effects of those genetic abnormalities in a very precise way. We know we're on the right track because there are a dozen or 15 of these uh, what are known as uh, targeted therapies that are targeted against these abnormalities. And so if we look at somebody's tumor and uh, try to determine precisely what the genetic abnormalities are, in some percentage of cases there is an abnormality for which a drug exists. And that's where we're talking about precision. But we have to be careful also not to restrict our discussion to genomic abnormalities. The most exciting thing happening in cancer now is immunotherapy, and what we're searching for at a basic science level are what are the markers that tell you whether or not an immune therapy will work, and that's another example of trying to be precise. What is precisely wrong in the patient's cancer in front of you that will dictate a precise therapy that will provide an excellent clinical response with minimum side effects?
1: And I know uh, Dr. Jackman, Dr. Rollins is talking about this whenever we talk about it, Mm -hmm. but How can precision medicine improve diagnosis and treatment?
3: Well, so I I think we're incredibly excited about what it's done for our patients already. You know, when we look at how we used to treat lung cancer with chemotherapy, and chemotherapy helped a fair number of patients but didn't help everyone, and more importantly, there was no way to predict who was going to help and who wasn't going to help. And so we wound up treating a lot of patients, recognizing that we were only going to see benefit in some percentage of that. And while no treatment is guaranteed to work, when we can study what's wrong with someone's tumor, what's going wrong on a cellular level, and then find that, oh, we have drugs that are tar- targeted specifically against that protein or that pathway, the chance of having a response and having someone live longer and feel better are much, much higher to the point that we're, we're doubling, tripling, in some t- cases quadrupling the response rates compared to what we had seen with traditional chemotherapy in the past.
1: Uh, are targeted therapies used alone, or they are used in conjunction with other treatments?
3: That's a great question, and one that is very much still part of what we're trying to explore. Um, in some cases, the, with, with our currently available treatments, the targeted therapies alone are just as good on their own and with fewer side effects, and so we do use them alone. But as newer treatments come to bear, we're looking at potentially combining them to see if we can make them more effective um, and more durable. You know, Dr. Rollins mentioned immunotherapies, which is something that's very exciting, and they're being studied not just alone, but also thinking about if we combine them with chemotherapy, um, will that make it more effective? What Does it even matter if we sequence them differently, if we give the chemotherapy first and the immunotherapy second, rather than doing them at the same time? Does that potentially have an impact? So all of these questions are very much in play, and we're still trying to explore some of these.
1: But Dr. Rollins, can a patient go back to standard therapy after receiving targeted therapy?
2: Oh, certainly. You know, for and again, I'm going to say the same thing I said at the beginning. We have to be very careful of the hype. In 2015, the number of cancer patients who are directly uh, benefiting from targeted therapies in this kind of precision cancer medicine is relatively small. We expect that to grow tremendously. That's one of the reasons we're here. That's why um, people like Dave and others do uh, clinical trials to try to establish that. But the backbone of cancer treatment still today is chemotherapy. Having received a targeted therapy does not preclude someone from receiving a chemotherapy that could be just as effective as it might have been at the beginning. And I think from a clinical point yeah. of view, it's something that you always have as a backup even in precision cancer medicine cases.
3: And if I may add to that, you know, I think that when we think about precision medicine and some of these tests that we do, you know, too often we think about the positives. Oh, you have this mutation, we have this drug. but negative tests are just as important to us because they help tell us you don't have this mutation don't waste your time with this drug because it's likely not to benefit the standard chemotherapy is the best thing that we have so you know pursue that with vigor
1: i know your um, specialty is uh, lung cancer but is precision medicine available for every patient for all diseases?
3: Yep. So, it, it, So, I it, I think we need to think about it both narrowly and broadly. And so, as Dr. Rollins already mentioned, you know, part of what we're interested in is getting selecting the right patients for some of the approved targeted drugs that we already have, and and that's a finite number of therapies. And then part of it is kind of our constant. Exploration to find newer and better therapies, to find new targets, and so here at Dana-Farber, we're interested in studying patients with all different kinds of cancers at all different stages, so that we can learn more about it. And, and if there are no currently available targeted therapies for these particular mutations, you know, how can we identify and potentially develop such therapies? So, so is the should is the testing something that we think about doing? Across cancer, the answer is yes. Does it necessarily bear specific fruit for every patient with every disease? No, not yet.
1: So there's no one disease that it works better than others. Is that a question you get?
3: Well, you know there there have there there have been clear successes, and lung cancer is one of the areas where there have been clear successes. You know there are already several approved agents. based on somebody's genomic characteristics. There are two drugs that are approved for patients with mutations in something called the epidermal growth factor receptor. There are two drugs that are currently approved for patients who have rate rearrangements of another um, gene called ALK, ALK. And so so some of these tests are very important. and We think they should be done in all patients with a certain kind of lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, um, that has spread to other areas, that we think that these therapies are approved and appropriate for those patients. So so there have been very clear um, signals where we think all lung cancer patients should get these. Um, For other patients with lung cancer or potentially with other diseases, there's not that clear signal yet, but we want to pursue this testing because we think this is going to bring us into the future.
2: So I think that's exactly right. But in addition to the lung cancer example, I mean, we do see great successes, for example, in melanoma. I would again argue that uh, the treatment of specific subtypes of breast cancer for the past several decades, whether somebody has estrogen receptor or an amplified her 2 new, there are therapies that are specifically designed to treat those patients with those abnormalities. But one of the other things we can think about is as you start to test across an entire population and you start to think about doing clinical trials, if we test a large population, we can identify everybody who has a mutation in gene X, regardless of what that cancer is, and recruit them into what are being called basket trials. And they're called basket trials because you can imagine a basket full of patients who have all different kinds of cancers, but may have the same molecular abnormality. And the question we're trying to answer is, is this drug that was designed to block the abnormality in those cancers, this gene X abnormality, is it effective in all those patients? It's a way to sort of a new way to think about doing clinical trials in which you're not just looking at one disease, but you're looking at all diseases that have the same molecular abnormality. And I think that's going to be a very important part of our armamentarium when we think about doing clinical trials. And then, you know, the other thing that we want to do is learn as much as we can, as quickly as we can, about what are the measurements that we should be doing on patients' cancers to understand more and more about how to do precision medicine. And that's why for people who are at Dana-Farber and know about the Profile Project, this is a project in which we are doing molecular profiling of every patient who comes to Dana-Farber, Brigham and Women's, and Children's Hospital with a diagnosis of cancer or a presumed diagnosis of cancer. And the reason for doing that is not because we can potentially help all of those patients today, But the reason we're doing that is because all of those patients potentially provide important information about what the effect of mutation X is on the behavior of that cancer, on the response to certain therapies, including conventional chemotherapy. And that's why we want to collect this information on everybody as sort of a massive institute-wide research test that's going to, and that kind of information is going to make precision cancer medicine in the future more relevant to everybody as we learn more and more.
1: Are we the only um, institute or cancer center that's doing that right now?
2: So every cancer center that is worthy of the name Cancer Center is doing some kind of molecular testing. Most of the cancer centers are now doing sequencing of patients' tumors. Uh, And some places are doing a fair amount. Some are doing smaller amounts. Some places are focusing on patients with specific tractable diseases like adenocarcinoma of the lung. As of right now, as of today, we are the only institution that is um, measuring these changes in everybody. And the rationale for doing that is because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what we're going to find until we do absolutely everybody. And the interesting thing that we're finding is there are these cases that pop up of patients who have abnormalities that were completely unanticipated and turn out to be very highly predictive. For, for the response to certain drugs, there are patients with multiply failed leukemias who, just because we did routine profile testing, found an abnormality that responded to a drug and got that patient a transplant. And you know, we've been calling these sort of Lazarus cases. And one of the arguments that, that we'd like to make to insurers, third party payers, is you wouldn't find this unless we tested everybody, and so we should be reimbursed for that. The reimbursement is a whole other issue, but it is an important one for precision cancer medicine because not all of the tests that we do are, are going to be paid for.
1: Do you both find that most people know what precision medicine is, or do you feel like you've been getting a lot of que- more questions maybe from patients and, and maybe even staff or just the general public?
3: I think that they may not know it by that name but I think that over the last decade that there's been a lot in the media amongst lots of different diseases that they they get bits and pieces. Are you going to test my tumor? Not necessarily knowing what we're testing for, but but you know having heard that there's some testing that should take place and that this may give them a chance to have access to other therapies
2: beyond you know, the more traditional ones.
1: Dr. Rawls, is that the same for you? Do you feel like people are becoming more aware?
2: Yeah. Uh- First of all, if you look at um, uh, at any newspaper, if you think about what's been published in the New York Times in the past year, maybe once a month, twice a month, there is something about genetic testing in cancer, whether they're following up what a company has done or they're following up what uh, some uh, great new clinical trial has shown. The basis for that is usually that someone has done a measurement, a, a genetic measurement. And so, as Dave says, patients come and say, you know, I want you to measure my tumor. What... Is what's problematic a little bit here is um, this is going to be my theme today is the overpromise. And we have to be careful that the patients who come and say, measure my tumor, are not uh, that we don't encourage the belief that if we measure your tumor, we will find a targeted treatment for you. That's just not where the state of the art is yet. But what we can say is we will do everything we can to try to find that. Plus, we will work with you, you can join our research team and provide some of your tumors so that we might find something that's going to help patients in the future. What we've also found is that, um, you know, this, this notion of, of precision cancer medicine the way we've been talking about it sort of paints this brave new world of a patient who comes to Dana-Farber, they get their tumor sample, which was already obtained to make their diagnosis, sent over to the laboratory at the Brigham. Uh, the the um, Center for Advanced Molecular Diagnostics where sequencing is done. The patient's doc gets the answers back. The patient goes upstairs, and the doctor writes the prescription for that particular mutation. That's the brave new world. Well, we're not there yet. Um, And and there are lots of reasons we're not there yet. There are scientific reasons, but there are also just very practical reasons. How do you get patients' tumors? And we see 16,000 patients a year. How do you get all those tumors over to the Brigham? How do you get all those tumor samples prepared for analysis? How do you then do all the analysis? How do you report this all out? We've devoted a huge amount of time and effort. There are at least a hundred people at our three institutions who devote all of their time to figuring out how to make this process work. Because if we're talking about precision cancer medicine for everybody, you have to figure out how the process flow works, how you get the tissues there, how you get the readings done. And so what, what I've been saying to my friends is it's kind of a braveish new world, you know? <laughs> you gotta worry about the operational stuff if we're gonna make this real.
1: I mean, logistically, it was difficult.
2: It still is, it yeah. still is. I mean, we've made real advances and uh, we've learned a lot, but, but that's, you know, without that, we got nothing.
1: All right, this from somebody watching, what are the cost differences between precision medicine therapies and traditional treatment or chemotherapy? Who wants to take that one?
3: <laughs> That's hard because you know, it, it's, it's not classified by one type of thing. There are some intravenous chemotherapies that have been around for decades, and so at this point they're generic and, and much more affordable. There are other newer traditional chemotherapies that are quite costly. You know the targeted medications, because they are a newer and B are targeting a smaller part of the market, in many cases, their initial costs are much higher than when we might have hoped otherwise. And so while many of the targeted therapies are more expensive, there are also some traditional chemotherapies that are similarly priced.
1: Is that a big question, too, from patients about cost when they talk about precision medicine?
3: I think it, it's, it's, not, it's not a question that comes up when they're getting their initial testing. It's a question if and when we find a mutation that leads us to send them down this road. Um, If it's as part of a clinical trial, well, then the clinical trial often covers the cost of the medication. But if it's outside of a clinical trial with an approved medication, whether targeted or non-targeted, that's where questions of costs can arise, especially for oral medications where they're not being delivered traditionally in the infusion unit. They're getting a prescription and having to go fill it. The copays are sometimes um, challenging. Right,
2: yeah. You know, if you take a step back and think about what the overall mm-hmm. impact of precision medicine is on health care costs, theoretically, we should be reducing health care costs by being more precise, by giving medications that have a higher likelihood of working um, to patients and, and as as Dave said, not giving medications to patients who don't have the abnormalities. Overall, the cost should be lower as long as we're not sort of subjected to unreasonable uh, price points set by pharmaceutical companies.
1: Uh, This question from someone watching, in the future, we'd like to think that precision medicine will allow us to diagnose, sequence, treat a patient in a relatively short amount of time. What do you see as the one or two most rate limiting steps to accomplishing this process be it the diagnosis sequencing manufacturing or treatment phase
3: I think that so so as we think about things in its current state precision medicine hasn't played a real role in diagnosis and so I want to be clear about that so the recognition of symptoms leading us to a test that then helps detect your cancer isn't what we're talking about. And everything that we've talked about so far today comes from once you've been diagnosed with a cancer and we're trying to figure out what your treatment should be. You know, in terms of the turnover, um... Of the, of the testing. That's, that continues to improve. And so, you know, I think when, when we are looking to do testing for just one or two specific genes, we can turn that over in days. When we're looking at doing uh, a, a platform that's looking across 300 genes, that's currently somewhere in the order of two to three weeks. Um, but as technology improves, we anticipate that both the time to do that test and the cost to do that test will continue to come down.
2: So I, I really like this question because um, it gets a little bit to this point about operationally, where are the problems. Um, I, I like to say that um, you know precision medicine has promise, but it also has threats. And one of the threats is it, it turns out it's really easy to sequence, that it's cheap. You know, Our profile test of those 300 genes, only the true cost is only about $800. And um, as technology continues to advance, that price will probably continue to diminish a little bit. So it's easy to sequence and it's easy to get tons of sequence. Where We're now seeing the bottleneck. The rate limiting step is interpretation. If you start sequencing everybody, you're going to come up with changes in the DNA sequence and you're not going to know whether they have any significance. You know, for maybe, there's, there's, what, maybe a hundred genetic variants that we know about, that we really understand what they do. But sequencing turns up all these other things. What you need, it's almost a new scientific discipline, this annotation of sequencing results. Some informatics-based approach that takes all the sequencing data, interprets it, and provides a report to a provider that's actually useful. A total sequencing report is not useful to a provider. Uh, even somebody as sophisticated as Dr. Jackman It's just not <laughs> going to help. What you need is interpretation, and no institution has been ready for the cost involved in that, and that, that's where I see a real rate-limiting step.
1: Uh, Dr. Jackman, I'm sure this is for you. How is precision medicine used in the treatment of lung cancer? How has it evolved in the last few years?
3: You know, I, I think that its, its origins go back to 2004 when scientists both here and across town discovered the epi- mutations in the epidermal growth factor receptor. And, and, and this was the first instance in lung cancer where we had a targeted therapy, but we didn't really know what the target was, or not as clearly as as, as, as we should have, and recognized that, oh, it's for patients who have this gene that's mutated, this is where you're going to have real success. And so since that time, there have been a number of other gene mutations or rearrangements that have been discovered. Um, some have led to approved therapies, and others have therapies in clinical trials that remain of interest and are, are very exciting. You know, when we look, at, Dr. Rollins mentioned before that sometimes we learn from other diseases and then try to apply it to lung cancer. We discovered years ago that, that patients with melanoma that has a mutation in a gene called BRAF. Um, uh, there 's a targeted therapy that uh, that attacks the BRAF protein. Um, and now we're discovering that a small percentage of lung cancer patients have this exact same mutation. So now we're in the process of doing a number of clinical trials with these BRAF inhibitors to see if they have the same efficacy, and certainly we have had a number of cases where patients have done very well with these, and so trying to learn across cancers so that we're moving away, not completely moving away, but starting to think beyond, oh, you have lung cancer, and now you have you have a cancer that has this mutation, and we're going to learn from clinical trials across the board to see how do we apply this to you sitting in front of me.
1: As somebody also wrote in, that how, what about impacting the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer versus mm-hmm. small cell lung cancer?
3: Yep. So, so a lot of our initial successes have been with non-small cell lung cancer with regards to targeted therapies and immunotherapies so far. Um, though I think that it's something that we continue to be very active in trying to explore the genome of patients with small cell lung cancer, trying to explore, you know, whether immunotherapies will have a similar impact in small cell lung cancer. So while there haven't been clear successes thus far, it remains an area of active interest and research, and we hope that it it will yield fruit soon.
1: Uh, Dr. Rollins, do side effects from precision medicine treatment differ from those patients' experience during regular chemotherapy?
2: Well, they do, and I think Dr. Jackman could speak to the specifics about this, but let me make a general comment first. You know, the idea about targeted therapy is that you have a drug that interacts specifically with the abnormal protein that's caused by this gene mutation. You know, genes don't do anything themselves. are the blueprints for proteins, and it's proteins that cause most of the abnormalities we're talking about And these drugs, if they're designed right, will bind to the abnormal protein to turn off its effects and not to the normal. So the basis for side effects is the drugs that we use inhibit normal proteins. So this theoretical drug shouldn't interact with the normal protein. And to some extent, the BRAF inhibitor is mm-hmm. kind of like that. And so we're, we're seeing many, many fewer side effects, and certainly not the nausea, vomiting, hair loss, mm-hmm. low blood count sort of side effects, other things, uh, skin rash and um, mm-hmm. in the BRAF uh, inhibitor thing, occasionally some skin uh, cancers that can be treated locally. But the, the, the spectrum is quite different. But you're actually practicing mm-hmm. this and seeing these differences. You know,
3: and, and so, yeah, many of the targeted therapies have been considerably more tolerable than how we traditionally think of chemotherapy, but do want to be clear and careful about recognizing that they still are chemotherapies. They still are drugs that have the potential for side effects. And so, just because something is a pill per se, it you know, want to be car- not to equate it to aspirin. You know that that there are potentially significant side effects that we want to warn patients about, educate them to recognize. And as we, as a community, get more familiar with how to recognize and treat these things, we're all getting better at it
1: find that most doctors are interested in precision medicine as far as in their cancer treatment day to day?
3: I think that most doctors, I like to think that all doctors, really care about how do I do the best for my patient. And as as it has become clearer over the last few years that this is part of that, I think doctors are very interested in it
1: how are doctors and researchers advancing the field of precision medicine? What is the latest research and how will it impact future cancer treatment? And I know cancer specialists from all over the Mm -hmm. world are meeting at ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Mm -hmm. Is this always a big topic or a topic of recent years when the meeting is held?
2: So ASCO is coming up, but the American Association for Cancer Research just had its meeting this week. And uh, there were a lot of reports, and Dana-Farber was very well represented reports of Treatments that are designed specifically around this precision cancer medicine problem. In fact, um, one of the more exciting areas now is in some of these precision treatments, unfortunately what we see is the development of resistance to that treatment. And sometimes it can be rapid, sometimes it can take a while, and the next sort of cutting-edge area that we're interested in is how do you overcome resistance. A lot of people are doing this. Levi Garraway is running a center now where sort of the raison d'etre is to Understand how resistance arises and how you overcome that resistance, and so there's there's just a ton of stuff that came out at the ACR meeting about this kind of precision cancer medicine. But I know you're going to ASCO and probably expect to see the same thing.
3: Absolutely, I mean I think that so that a colleague from New York likes to joke that a targeted therapy is any treatment after 1998 because mm. all <laughs> chemotherapies have a target. You know, but this notion not just of a Of of a therapy, you know, that acts in a certain way, but I I think the real tie to it is that we have a test that tries to help predict, you know, who's going to benefit from such treatments, and I think that that has been, you know, such a huge area of interest in the cancer community. So naturally, it dominates a lot of of how we think about cancer and and how we think how when we attend such conferences.
1: Uh, For both of you, how can patients find out about potential precision medicine treatments? Do you think the web is
2: a good one? Are <laughs> no, you mm-hmm. are web proponent? Uh, actually, uh, actually, I am. There, there are, you know, there are always some dangerous websites, right? And there is misinformation out there. But there's also some very good information out there. One of the websites that we've created is precisioncancermedicine.org, that describes some of the things we've talked about here. Uh, it also is a way to search for clinical trials that might be involved in precision cancer medicine. But let me be a little Broader and unbiased, and just also point out that Vanderbilt has a wonderful website (laughs) called My Cancer Genome, which has a lot of information too.
3: While we can't, we have to be careful with some of the stuff on the internet. I think that there, in addition to official websites by our institution, by the American Cancer Society, one of the things that the web has done that we haven't seen before is it's linking patients together. Mm -hmm. And they're telling each other their stories. This is what happened. I went to Dana-Farber. They saw that I had med amplification. They put me on a clinical trial, and here's what it's involved. Here's the side effects I've had. Here's how often I have to go. I think that's been a really powerful thing for a lot of patients.
1: Great. Great information from both of you today. really appreciate you both being here to talk about this subject.
0: This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dana-Farber Chief Scientific Officer Dr. Barrett Rollins and Dr. David Jackman of Dana-Farber's Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit danafarber.org podcasts.